Hello and welcome to the East Baltimore Graffiti Church's podcast. We are so excited to have you join us today. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at ebgraffitichurch at gmail.com. Or you can check us out on our website at ebgraffitichurch.org. Turning your Bibles again for the sake of our recording here today to Ezra chapter 10. Ezra chapter 10 as we continue. Listen, today, today is the culmination It is the final episode of season one of the house that God is building in the book of Ezra. Now, if like me, you're a fan of This Is Us and you've been watching it for several seasons and you were disappointed in the last episode of the show ever, I, Ezra chapter 10, will not disappoint today, amen? Again, just a little shot there at the last episode, a little disappointed after waiting all those weeks. Nonetheless, Ezra chapter 10. We read our scripture this morning, right? So before our episode begins, we're going to do a little review of what happened last week, right? So Ezra has found out after 60 years, he's, he's come back. The temple is built. The people are worshiping their living life. And he finds out that a whole bunch of them have just over the years directly disobeyed God married foreign and what they mean by that what he means by that is pagan women women who did not share their faith they were uh, from other nations other countries and and, in direct disobedience to God so Ezra is in mourning he is in mourning he has torn his clothes pulled out some of his hair and he is on his face that the word prostrate that we read there uh, falling down on his face in this this position of humility in front of God over the sins of the people, not because he was angry at them, but because he was mourning the sins of his, of his brothers and sisters who were, supposed, who were, are in relationship with God. So we pick that up today. And our title today is Reconciling, Reconciling with God. Uh, And we're going to talk about what real repentance is. And interestingly enough, so we use a church word, but maybe not always a church word here, the word reconcile, to restore to friendship or harmony. You ever had a disagreement or a fight with your best friend and you just thought the world was over and you just didn't know how the world would be without your bestie? Oh my goodness, you wake up the next morning And you're so sad because you're not going to talk to that person today because you had a fight and you're mad at each other. Or maybe you've rescinded your friendship, blocked them on Instagram, and and don't even want to talk to their friends. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Or if your best friend is your spouse and you have a serious disagreement in that marital relationship and things get very cold very quickly. This idea of reconciling, right? We like that, at least I like that. Making things right to restore to friendship or harmony. As a matter of fact, I like this definition, to settle or resolve a matter. We're going to reconcile this thing that is a problem. We're gonna settle this. To admit or to accept hardship. I like that. We're reconciling something that went wrong. We might have to do that as a church. You might have to do that in your family. You might have to do that in your relationship 
to the culture at large, right? Well, I like the accounting definition, if you like accounting, unlike me. Rather be stabbed into eyeballs with plastic forks. Brother Olin is not here this morning. We praise God for Brother Olin because he likes accounting. To check one account against another for accuracy. Don't you, doesn't that sound good? Yeah. So this idea of reconciling, well, the Israelites needed to be reconciled to God. And we're going to see several things here today. As a matter of fact, in their excellent book on reconciliation, Emmanuel Katangole uh, and Chris Rice share this true story about a man named Billy Moore who would both find Jesus in prison and ultimately find his victim's parents to be, to be his greatest advocates. When Billy Neal Moore was in jail awaiting trial in which he would be sentenced to death, a minister shared with him the good news that Jesus loved him and wanted to forgive his sins. Moore learned that no one is beyond redemption. From prison, he even wrote to his victim's family and asked for their forgiveness. Astoundingly, they immediately wrote back to say that they also were Christians and they forgave him, the man who killed their son. Then the family decided to petition the Georgia Parole Board to commute Moore's death sentence. In 1991, and I don't know how many years he spent in prison in the meantime, but in 1991, Moore was paroled from prison, transformed by the grace of God and his victims' family members. When I was released, he said they embraced me like a brother, Moore said of uh, Stapleton's family. He has been preaching the gospel of forgiveness to school children and church groups ever since. You think that might be the most astounding story that you've ever heard about reconciliation and forgiveness. It certainly is a great story about someone who was able to reconcile. Billy, uh, Billy Neal Moore got to reconcile with God through salvation. So he became reunited with the God from whom he was separated, just like you and me prior to knowing Jesus Christ as our Savior. We are separated from the God who loves us. He was reconciled to God in salvation, the God in whose image he was created. And then God brought things to bear that you never would think possible. But you know God does that, offers that to each and every one of us through Jesus Christ. Amen? So here we have this story about a killer who was embraced like a brother because of reconciliation. So reconciling with God. Uh, first, uh, next slide, please. We see very quickly in verse 1 that reconciliation begins with prayer, right? While Ezra was praying and making confession, he was weeping and throwing himself down on the floor, that's what it literally means, before the house of God, and something interesting happens. Here, this is something that I would have missed um, had I not taken some time this week. Said. A very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel. So these are probably the people who came with him. They most likely were not the people participating in this sin that has been revealed. And so they came before him, they came around Ezra, and they wept. 
with him. Remember last week we said this group, um, they didn't gossip. They didn't judge their brothers and sisters. It would have been very easy, right? Man, we leave y'all here for a few years, take care of God's house and look at you. Just look at you. Man, can you believe what those guys were doing? No, they wept bitterly. Listen, they, they were heartbroken over the sins of their brothers and sisters. Um, next slide. So some things happen when people begin, when you and I, I'll just talk about me, when, when this, this idea of, of one, repentance begins with prayer, we go to God, we confess our sins, right? So we have this, we confess our sins, hopefully, hopefully a brokenness takes place. When I confess my sins, I ask myself this question, am I truly, truly sorry for what I have done in sinning against God? I want to be broken. If my sin harms you, I want to be broken over that as well. And first and foremost, does my heart ache? Am I sorrowful or over this sin, or do I just take God's grace for granted? If you've been a Christian for a while, maybe, you have prayed, oh God, forgive me. Whew, thank God for his grace, right? Mm, I'm good now. And tomorrow I do the same sin over it. That's, that's not brokenness. I may have confessed my sin to God, but I'm not broken over my sinfulness. And, and we're going to get a better idea of this as we go along. And then we talked about two weeks ago this position of humility, right? Ezra assumes this position of humility in prayer, and he's not even the one sinning against God. But when I get down on my knees, we talked about fasting and prayer. And I get alone, I get quiet, I get in front of God, and I assume this position of humility, both maybe physically and in my heart and mind. God is the one against whom I've sinned. God is the only one who can forgive my sin. My sin is a big deal to God. My sin, our sin, is such a big deal to God. He sent his son to become a human, to live on earth, to die for us. God gave us his best and he gave us his all because of our sin. God takes sin seriously. So, this humility and also, also realizing that um, my sinfulness impacts others, but, but also... You know, the sinfulness of their brothers and sisters impacted this group who had just come in. And, and again, they assumed the same position that Ezra did. They were heartbroken over the sins of their brothers and sisters. They weren't mad. They weren't judging. So, so sometimes, I'll say this, and, and file this one uh, away, or think about it for a minute, and then file it away. You know, the sin of others... Someone said this the other day, but for the grace of God, there go I. I have some friends who say that, and I caught myself getting cute about some pastor who had fallen into sin. And he was a mean guy, so it was easy to be cute, right? And then I realized um, my friend very quietly said, but for the grace of God, there go I. Oh, took a hit on that one, right? Because I wanted to be judgy, right? Um, so we have this idea that our sin, that even other people's sin can impact us, but can impact us in a good way. I want to be cautious, but for the grace of God, there go I. I want to lead and examine life. I want to go before God with humility and prayer and fasting so that I don't have to be called out for some great sin in the future. Next slide, please. 
we can hold that place there. There is something that, um, I lied, go back one please. Yes, so you don't have this because, because uh, I got up this morning with stuff on my mind, sorry. Let's think about it this way. Jesus is in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter five. And the first two Beatitudes sound like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn. He's talking about blessed are those who mourn over their sinfulness. Blessed are those who mourn over their sinfulness. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. That person, the poor in spirit, recognizes who he is, he, who he or she is, apart from God. Poor in spirit, sometimes we say humility. I recognize, one recognizes who they would be, who they are, apart from Jesus Christ. And then, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourning over my sinfulness will lead to confession. We don't stop at confession, will lead to repentance and then, and therefore, I can be comforted. I can be comforted by the grace of God. Amen? So Matthew chapter 5, the first two Beatitudes, um, start to give us this picture of what confession and repentance and what my heart attitude, right? I mean, we have to think. We use our brains, but we have this heart attitude. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and, and you sin, right, whether it's just a a sin of the day or whether it is a a habitual sin with which you struggle right do i mourn over that sinfulness truly mourn and am i ready to take action but i don't want to get ahead of myself so ezra's praying people have gathered around him and then he says something uh next slide he says something very specific in verse 2 that I don't want us to miss. He says, we have been unfaithful to our God. So this guy, Shechaniah, I, I don't know when he says we, I, I think he's saying we as in, I think he's part of the group that just showed up. But he's saying we, Israelites, as in the other, I'm not certain of that, but I believe that that is so. And he says, uh, and yet, even though we've done this sinfulness, that there is hope for us with God. So, in verses 2 and 3 here, he says, So now let us make a covenant with our God to put away our wives and children. Does that sound harsh? Remember, this is not racial, this is not ethnic, this is all about faith in God. These men had married women who came from pagan families, who came from pagan nations, uh, the Israelites, um, the leaders realized that primarily back in the day, the women would raise the next generation of children and they would be raising them up in pagan traditions and pagan religions. And so because of their disobedience, God said, hey, God said, uh, or, or part, Ezra calls, out, calls them out on behalf of God and says, you have to put away your pagan wives and children. It sounds harsh to us and, and because of the culture in which we live now, and yet they had lived in direct disobedience to God 
and were threatening the extinction of their religion, of their, of their covenant relationship with God, if they continued, watch this, to raise up generations of children who worship pagan gods and did not have a relationship with the one true God. Think about that in today's culture, us as Christian families. How am I raising my children? Do I have an opportunity to impact my grandchildren for Jesus Christ? What is the next generation going to look like? And so this is what the Israelites are dealing with here. One, recognizing that I have broken fellowship with God. That is the unfaithfulness. Now, as followers of Jesus, I believe the Word of God teaches us that we do not lose our salvation. If God is big enough to save you, he's big enough to keep you. Amen? And I believe that with all my heart. Now, if you're challenged by that or you want to talk about that later, we can. And I can share some scriptures with you. But right now, um, the Israelites, so when he says, let us make a covenant with God, really he's saying, let us renew our covenant relationship with God. There are times in our lives where we say, I rededicated my life to the Lord. Or I, I surrendered my life to God again. We might say those things. And really that is simply what we're doing our fellowship interrupt i mean our sinfulness particularly habitual sin with which we struggle right challenges our fellowship our regular fellowship with god what do you do sometimes when you sin do you run back to god in prayer right away or sometimes we stay away don't we or if i'm if i have a habitual sin that's really plaguing my life sometimes i'll stop reading my bible for a while sometimes i won't talk to god in prayer as much as i usually why because I feel guilty, because I'm a small child, because I'll be like Adam and Eve and run and hide, think I can hide in the bushes and not have to deal with God? No. So the Israelites have been unfaithful. They had this opportunity, and how do we know? Because I love the end of verse 2. In spite of this, there is still hope for us. In spite of my sinfulness, whatever that might be, fill in the blank, I don't have to list it for you. But some of us wrestle with habitual sins, and God knows that. And sometimes it just messes up our fellowship with God. Sometimes that can happen on and off for years and years. And you can just settle into that, that kind of messed up relationship with God. I remember when I was a kid, I was not a good liar. I had a fifth grade teacher told me that one time. She said, Mr. Brown, you will never be a good liar. So if you ever do anything wrong, just own up to it and get it over with, right? Get what's coming to you. She was right. I wear it all over my face. But if you ever, like when you were a kid, right, and you did something wrong and you lied to your parents and you were trying to keep that from them, and I don't know, like maybe some of you are good at it, I wasn't, it would like eat me up inside. I would think, oh, do they know? Oh, do they know? Then I would say, oh, I feel bad. Oh, what if somebody snitches on me? And I didn't, you know, all, that's, that's what we do in our relationship with God. So, so remembering that I've broken fellowship with God and remembering, just remember that there is hope. Amen. Next slide. Now, here in verse 3, we can begin this process of renewing our relationship with God, renewing my fellowship with God, reconciling with God. So there are some things that we see here, in, particularly in uh, verses 3 and 4, and they're pretty simple, and yet sometimes we just don't do them. We see here that the Israelites received wise counsel, right? He said, according to the counsel of my Lord, that's a little L, by the way, that was his religious leader, and in this case, that was Ezra. Sometimes God will put people in your life who will give you wise counsel. 
If you don't have someone like that in your life, you should seek and pray for God to put someone like that in your life. A leader, and when I say leader, I use the term very loosely. It might just be a mature Christian. It might just be someone that you admire their walk with the Lord, who's you know shown a, just a track record in their walk with the Lord, or someone who used to have the same struggle that you do, and you see they have victory in their lives. So I'm using the term loosely, but but receive, seek, and receive wise counsel from someone. And listen, and be careful and thoughtful about it too. Not everybody's gonna give you good advice, right? Um, pray about it. But receiving wise counsel, we see that here. Let us make a covenant with our God, put away our wives and children, which doesn't even sound right, but we know why, according to the counsel of my leader. Sometimes your trusted person is gonna tell you something you don't like. It might be tough advice on which you need to take action. And then, and I said it, I guess, in the next one, trusted leader and peers. We have peers, right? You have friends in your life. Hopefully you have friends in your life who are walking closely with Jesus. And you know, sometimes God just gives you that friend. Sometimes it might be someone you don't even expect, right? But you have peers, and they may say something that's God-ordained from the Holy Spirit for your benefit. We see that here, too. We say, and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. There were these righteous people who gathered around Ezra and they got on their faces too and prayed for the other Israelites. There are godly people who will encourage you as you attempt to, as you reconcile with God. They won't judge you, they'll love you. They'll tell you hard truth and they won't judge you. They won't gossip about you. They won't try to control you, but they will tell you good truth. They will love on you. God will strategically put these people in your life and don't minimize them. But you see, the Israelites had these people in their lives. And then we see very specifically obeying the Word of God. This is tough. The Word of God, in, in the book of Deuteronomy, God told them, don't marry outside of our faith. Don't marry the pagan women. Don't start families with pagan women. And they did it again anyway, direct disobedience to God. Sometimes I just want to do what I want to do. I know you probably don't experience that because you walk closely with Jesus. Sometimes there's just that sin or there's just that attitude and it's in direct disobedience to the Word of God. Listen, some, and, and we're going to talk more about this in the next slide, taking responsibility. Taking res now listen. I ask, I confess my sins. God's the only one who can forgive my sins. I can't work my way out of my sins, but there comes a time when I must take responsibility for my behavior. Ezra is calling out these children of Israel over a period of 50, well, 57 years to be exact. They got slack. And look, it started with the leaders. I guess we'll go there in a moment too. And, and they got slack in their walk with God. They saw some of their friends, right? Oh, my friend married this hot pagan girl down the street, right? Oh, she got a sister too, right? So, but, and before you know it, well, guess what? Guess what? A couple of our priests, I saw a couple of our priests down the club, and they got these new wives. Man, they're bad too, y'all. You should see them. If they can do it, why can't we? And so, and then 57 years later, Ezra is pulling out his hair on his face in front of God. Why? Because they're directly disobeying the word of God. 
weren't quite ready to take responsibility for their behavior. But then he says this in verse 4, and I think this is hard. And if you jot down Joshua chapter 1, uh, four times in Joshua chapter 1, God tells Joshua, be courageous, be courageous, be courageous, be very courageous. Because God knew what was ahead for Joshua. He says in verse 4 here, the people, but we will be with you. Listen, isn't that beautiful? Their brothers and sisters said, you got to do this. You do. You're the one that has to take responsibility, but we're not going to make you do it alone. We're going to be with you on this journey of reconciling your relationship with God. Be courageous. It takes courage. Sometimes, the Bible also says, confess your sins to one another as well as to God. Again, um, be thoughtful. Have that trusted person. Because what happens? Because then my friend will hold me accountable the next time in a loving but firm manner because they're wise, right? Now we don't go and, and shout all our business to everybody because not everybody's gonna understand what you're trying to do. But be courageous. Be courageous in your journey of repentance. And then here's where, we, here's where it gets good. And there's a guy who said a couple of smart things and uh, he says them better than I could so I'm gonna share it with you. I wasn't going to do this till, uh, oh yes, this is it. Now, if you'd like to turn to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 7.10, it says this. You can turn there or you can just hear what I'm saying. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Godly sorrow brings repentance unto salvation. So that's what we're talking about here. I wanted to read. So in 1 John 1, 9, it also says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But the biggest word in this scripture might be that two-letter word, if. If. For confessing sins... Admitting failure is exactly what prisoners of pride refuse to do. You know the lingo. Well, I may not be perfect, but I'm better than Hitler and certainly kinder than Idi Amin. Now, if any of you need to know who Idi Amin is, I'll tell you later. I'm a little older than most of you. Me, a sinner? Oh, sure. I get rowdy every so often, but I'm a pretty good old boy. Listen, I'm just as good as the next guy, right? I pay my taxes, I coach my little league team, I even make donations to the Red Cross sometimes. God's probably proud to have somebody like me on his team. Justification, rationalization, and comparison. These are the tools of the jailbird. They sound good, they sound familiar, they even sound a little American. But in the kingdom, they sound hollow. Blessed are those who mourn. To mourn for your sins is a natural outflow of poverty of spirit. The second beatitude should follow the first, but that's not always the case. Many deny their weakness. Many know that they are wrong, yet pretend they are right. As a result, they never taste the exquisite sorrow of repentance. When you mourn, you get to the point of sorrow for your sins. When you admit that you have no other option but to cast all your cares on Him, and when there is truly no other name that you can call, then cast all your cares on him, for he is waiting for you in the midst of the storm. Wow. Wow. 
You know, sometimes we struggle. Uh, that was Max Lucado, by the way, in the applause of heaven. Sometimes we struggle with the consequences of sin. This can be difficult. We feel sorrow, shame, guilt, and even loss over the things we have done. But we must remember these feelings alone do not bring about repentance. Okay, now here's where it gets deep. Just having those feelings and thinking those thoughts is not repentance. We will see later in the passage that our sorrow can be meaningful when we take action. Watch this, I love this. This is a quote from the same guy. Repentance is confession in working clothes. I love that. You're not excited. Re repentance is confession in working clothes. Repentance is confession that is going to work. Like getting up in the morning, putting on your boots and going to work. Okay, I'll move on. Repentance is intentionally and honestly facing the consequences of our actions because we know that God is forgiving and restoring us. My confession needs to put on its work clothes to become repentance. Next slide. So, just a thought in verse 5 here. Uh, this corporate repentance, repentance in the church that could bring about revival in one city, repentance in a church that could bring others to salvation, it requires godly leadership. Ezra came, he saw the sin, he called it out, which was bold. You know, the Israelites, they were known to kill some of their prophets if they didn't like their message, right? It requires godly leadership. Listen, some of these Israelites, they saw what their leaders were doing. They thought, you know, they thought, well, it must not be that bad a sin. Oh, maybe God's going to make an exception. Oh, maybe God really didn't mean what he said. Our leaders are doing it. Why can't we? Man, sin spreads like wildfire, particularly if our leaders are not people of integrity. I'm not saying your leaders, leaders in the church and pastors are just human beings who will sin and make mistakes. But intentional, ongoing patterns of sinfulness, our churches require godly leadership. Just a thought there in verse 5 that's very important. Because Ezra rose and made the leading priests and the Levites take the oath as well as everyone else. Publicly, by the way. So, verses 10 through 12 here. So this whole thing's going on, right? Ezra's calling the people to repentance. It sounds like the people want to repent. Listen, this is hard. They love their wives. Their wives love them. Many of them had children with these women. This is not happening in a vacuum. Families are going to be torn apart, but not because of God, but because of the disobedience of followers of God who didn't do what God said. This was going to be heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching. Sometimes there are consequences for our sins. We don't know if those men provided for their families the rest of their, rest of their lives, even though they were separated for them, from them. It sounds like maybe that's something they, they should have done, even though they had to obey God and separate from their families. Sometimes the consequences of our sin can run deep, right? We don't know that. The Word of God doesn't tell us that happened. But listen, this is gut-wrenching and heart-wrenching because of sinfulness. That's what sinfulness brings to our lives. Anyway, next slide here says, removing oneself from certain relationships. Oh, Pastor, now you're meddling, I can tell. You're going to meddle in our lives, Pastor. Not that many of us here this morning, we could leave, you know. Listen, very carefully here in verses 10 through 12, I'm going to stick to the word of God here. 
But he says, now therefore make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do his will and separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Listen, he's talking about the culture that their wives came from. So he's saying, separate yourselves from the culture in which you are hanging out and participating. I know that when I got sober, one of the first meetings I ever went to, um, wow, 19, oh, never mind, I'm not even gonna try it. It was almost 34 years ago. I went to one of the first NA meetings I ever been to. This dude stood up, kind of scary, man. I still remember, this guy was African-American, had this look on his face, you could tell he was a tough guy. I can't use the words he used, but he gave us a very good, gave us a very good, very brief message. He said, you have to change your playground, your play toys, and your play friends if you are gonna stay sober, Charlie. He, I mean, he was talking to the whole room. When I got sober and I went back home, when I, well, when I left rehab and went back home, I realized, I never forgot that. I never forgot the look on his face, man. Look, dude looked like he wanted to punch somebody. But he was serious about recovery. And he knew a bunch of us, he knew a bunch of us baby-faced youngins were in the meeting from rehab too. So I'm sure he was showing up, but the message was very clear. The message was very clear. Just confessing your sins isn't enough. Charlie, you got to get rid of your play toys, your play friends, and your playgrounds. I couldn't go to the same playgrounds anymore when I went home. I had to go to work, and that's where I did a lot of dirt with the, with the fellas. But I had to go to work, so I knew that was going to be a challenge. But I, I left family members in the dust. I left friends in the dust. I, I wasn't mean about it, but I was doing what I, I was doing what I knew I had to do to obey God, to live in a right relationship with God, and to be sober. Being sober is part of right, living in a right relationship with God, right? Don't misunderstand me. Some of you normal folks, you can have a glass of wine, a cold beer, and you're good, right? Well, I'm not one of your people. So in order for me to obey God, right, those things had to change. That's hard. That's tough language. That's tough language. I had to find new friends, new places to play, and new toys, right? And uh, that's exactly what Ezra is telling the people here. You can't hang out in the culture of your foreign wives and serve me. You can't be on the street. So do y'all know what that means, right? You can't be on the street and loving Jesus. Now listen, I know you know what I mean by that. Can't be out on the street doing dirt. I can't be living the way I used to live and come to church on Sunday and be praising Jesus. I had to make that decision. And sometimes those are hard, hard decisions. Because you got to leave people behind. you got to do different things. Confession's not quite enough. There comes a time when this repentance has to put on, this, this confession has to put on some work clothes. And i got to do the hard work of repentance. I did that in recovery. And there are some other things I, I haven't done it. So I need to put on my work clothes in some regards several times a week. Cheap grace is not a good thing. You want to talk? Remind me, cost of discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Cheap grace versus costly grace. Discussion for another day. But now you have me on record. So, emotionally difficult. It impacted other people. Their wives are going to be heartbroken. Their children weren't going to have dads. They were going to go back to their land, and the Israelites were going to live in and around Jerusalem and in community with other believers of God. 
This is going to be hard stuff. It's going to be hard. So how do I do it? Next slide. Listen, I love the scripture. This is why I love the end of the book of Ezra. We have to respond with a plan. So, so let me tell you what happened, and then we'll go back to the slide here, okay? Because the people said, we're doing it. We're doing it. We're there. We're doing it. We're going to obey God. Ezra said, good. But then a couple of the guys realized there's a whole bunch of us. And Ezra called them all out into the square, hundreds, maybe thousands, but at least hundreds and hundreds of people. It's a rainy season. It's the cold season. They're getting wet. They're emotionally upset. It's cold outside. They're shivering out in the cold, waiting to see what Ezra's going to tell them to do. And somebody speaks up and says, you know, we just can't do this all at once right here in this big group. We've got to have a plan. Listen, this is really good. The plan was awesome, right? He said, we're all going to, we're going to divide up into groups. We're going to appoint leaders and you're going to come back. We're going to give you a card. You're going to come back at an appointed time, right? We're going to text you a reminder, put it on your calendar. And each, each person who's in this situation is going to come in. We're going to do investigation. You're going to separate from your pagan wives and children. And this thing, this process, from what I understand, what I read took like three and a half months. There were like hundreds of families impacted by this and it took three months. So, you know, on Monday and Tuesday, like, you know, people A through C come on Mondays and Tuesdays, who knows, right? But he says, we're gonna have a plan. Why? Because challenges will arise. Challenges will arise. How am I gonna do this? How am I gonna do this? You know, I, I think about what it would be like um, to be addicted and to live with other people who were in addiction. And if I had to separate myself, well, guess what? We have a lease on an apartment or a house. We have bills together, whatever, you know, challenges will arise. That's why you need wise counsel. That's why you need godly peers. That's why you need godly people in recovery to help you because challenges are going to happen and we're going to have questions. How are we going to do this? We're not going to stand out in the rain and shiver all day and it's just going to happen on its, you know, by itself. So responding with a plan. We need others to help us with the plan, right? Ezra didn't do the plan all by himself. Someone stood up and said, hey, here's how I think we can do this. And then Ezra appointed leaders and the people repented. But it took a little bit of time. Recovery takes time. It's not an excuse because confession has to put on some work clothes and uh, to become repentance. But repentance, while you have initial repentance and you want to be faithful, right? We need a plan for recovery from our sinfulness, from our hurts, habits, and hangups. When we have hurts in our lives, what do we do? Sometimes we get counseling. Sometimes we have God places wise people in our lives to strategically encourage us. Sometimes we go to counseling for years. I've told you, I, I have a counselor, a coach. I have a counselor, a coach, an accountability partner, and a wife. Look, if I mess up, I don't have any excuses, right? But God has strategically placed those people in my life. Now, he didn't just like drop them out of the air, right? I had to do like, like you. I had to pray, seek those things, and then carefully watch what God is doing. So responding with a plan is important. And the book of Ezra ends with listing all of these families who, had re who repented. And it was hard. It was challenging. There were, um, man, it was probably a lot of crying and broken hearts. Uh, in order for this confession to become repentance. Removing oneself from certain relationships or at least examining, examining relationships that might have to be different. 
listen guys, the book of Ezra, uh, it does end in a sense on a high note. The people repented. They got right with God. They reconciled with God. They did the hard work of repentance. But listen, it wasn't pleasant along the way. Sometimes a journey can be challenging. You say, Pastor, that's not very encouraging news today. Oh, it's very encouraging news because like the song that we sang first today, oh Lord, nothing, nothing is better than you. See, here's what happens. Sometimes my sin that I like to play with, right? I have one, maybe you have one too. The sin that I like to play with, sometimes I think is better than anything else. That's why I don't let go of it. And the reality is the Word of God teaches me that there's nothing better than being in fellowship and a right relationship with God. There's no better joy, pleasure, excitement, none of that. There's nothing better. But sometimes we believe the lie. Don't believe the lie. You, and, and just like the Israelites, verse 4, there's hope. There's hope for you today. There's hope for me today because of who God is and because of Jesus. Amen. Father God, I do pray that today your word will take effect in our lives.